We have been talking about salvation, joy in a suffering world. And our text is 1 Peter chapter 1. And we have been looking at verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 and taking them one at a time. And as I told you, there are five things here that we are concerned with. Coming to this passage, we're dealing with a passage on salvation joy. And God is so concerned that your life be a joyful one. So we have pulled out five things that really minister to that joy. The first one is our inheritance. And we have already looked at that in detail, that hope that we have ahead of us. Peter says in verse 6, And this you greatly rejoice. And he's referring back to that inheritance. The second thing that contributes to our joy is our trials, and we have looked at that in detail, two whole messages on that. The third thing that ministers to our joy here is the promised honor that waits for us in heaven. And then the fourth is the fellowship that we have with Christ now here on this earth. And the fifth thing is the deliverance that we have in our salvation, the changed life that we enjoy now right here as we live on planet Earth awaiting our Lord's return. So we are coming now then to the third thing in our outline, which is this honor that waits for us in heaven that contributes to our joy now. In verse 7, Peter writes, and he says, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In verse 7, he says that the genuineness of our faith is tried with an end in mind, and that is that it may be found to praise and honor and glory in that day when we stand before Jesus Christ. And the praise and the honor and the glory is is not us praising Him. It is an honor He bestows upon us. So that our proven faith, which is so valuable to us here and now, to know of a certainty that you have genuine faith, that is so valuable. But added to that then, in the next part of verse 7, is this great honor that waits for our proven faith. So our proven faith will become an honored faith. There is a sense, as you look at these words here, praise and honor and glory, these three words, in which they collectively say the same thing. They speak of the honor that God is going to give us, that Jesus Christ is going to give us. But there is a sense also in which each one of them has an innuendo, a nuance, to impart to us, to fill out the richness of this honor that waits for us. So I want to look at each one of these three words individually. But the idea here is that God gives you faith as a gift. We've talked about that. The amazing thing then is that He uses all the trouble, which hits every human being, Christian or not, He uses all that trouble to test you. And then he takes that testing, and as you seek him and grow, he uses that to increase your faith and strengthen it. And then, when you get to heaven, he rewards you for that faith. 
So the faith that came from him originally as a miraculous gift is strengthened by his hand as you seek him and then rewarded by his hand when you get to heaven. That's the amazing grace and love of God for those that he saves. Someone has well said, if you die wrong the first time, you cannot come back and try to die better a second time. That is an intense understanding of things as they are. The great reality for the Christian is that as you seek the Lord, as you go through your tough times in life, and as you have your faith proved to you to be genuine, you know that you will die right in the end. You will die well. If you are not a Christian, you will die wrong. Jesus Christ came to this earth to show the way to heaven to every sinful human being, and every human being is sinful. He came to die in your place so that you could come to Him and trust Him for that death in your place, ask Him to forgive you for your sins, take His life to dwell within you, and when your time comes to die, you could die well. Are you ready to die well? If you die wrong, you will not have a second chance. But our text tells us here that every Christian with a proven faith is going to die well and be honored by Jesus Christ, the one that took their sins on himself at the cross. So, here is this honor that waits for us. Now, the first word we find here is praise. There's going to be praise for us from our Savior. And I am convinced that those people that have a proven faith that we've been talking about for two messages now actually live for that moment. This is a verbal praise that's going to come from Jesus Christ to His children, to His servants as they stand before Him. And it's the kind of a thing that as we have passed through the trials of this life, we are looking for that praise. In fact, the Bible is full of Scriptures and verses that speak to that issue. But I think the one that is the most well-loved by tested and proven servants of the Lord is in Matthew 25, 21. Could you turn there in your Bible? Matthew 25, 21. And here we have the parable of the talents which ministers so many things. But I just want to draw your attention to this one statement of praise. And his Lord said to him... Well done, good and faithful servant. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you know that phrase by heart? Can you just raise your hand up? Now, you know that phrase because it's often repeated, isn't it? You know why I think it's often repeated and maybe you've been often drawn there? Is because as we grow as Christians and we go through our difficulties in life, the farther we go, the more that phrase, that statement, means to us. Would you agree to that? I think it's because, you know, as our trials humble us, as our trials wean us off of worldly things, as our trials make us long for heaven, as our trials show us what we really love, and as our trials shape us and mold us and give us true godly character, something happens to us. We change. We pass through one mindset to another, one heart condition to another, which is one of the glories of the Christian life that you can change. But we change in this way. We, we cease to be motivated by the immediate. We go on to cease to be motivated by the material. 
We then go on to cease to be motivated by the praise of men. And there comes a point in time in your growth where you become motivated by praise from God. There comes a time for you as you grow as a Christian where your life begins to simplify. And you simplify it down to one main goal. And that goal is to stand before Jesus Christ and hear these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. In other words, there comes a point where you begin to live solely and only for the glory of God, where that becomes the driving passion of your life. You get this eternal view and you long for, you live for that moment when you will hear those words. You literally think about it all the time. And that's why when I asked you how many of you knew this by heart, so many of you raised your hands. It's such a part of the thinking of an advancing Christian. Robert Murray McShane, who knew the Lord so deeply in his brief life, so known for his devotion to God and his communion in Jesus Christ, he used to say, Live near to God and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. That's right. What happens is the closer you get to Jesus, the more the reality of heaven dominates your thinking the more you think about standing before Him and hearing His praise for what He has assigned you to do in this life. So that what happens really is as you grow, you really join ranks with Jesus Christ who said, I do always those things that what? Please the Father. You, you become one who lives for the glory of God and lives for the approval of God, not man or anything else. And living like this, thinking like this, having this kind of perspective does a wonderful thing to you. It tends to add a richness and a meaning to your post in life. It tends to take everything that you do and add meaning to it. Now, in the kingdom of God, there are a few that will stand in pulpits and, and be in front of the public. There are a few more that will assist in, in shepherding churches. They will be known to the people. There are a few more that will have key positions, key elders, this kind of thing. But by and large, the masses of God's people have a post in the world where they're not really famous, they're not really known like that, but they have a very key post in the world, and that's to be the light of the world. So that most of you, your, your main ministry, other than serving and being involved in your church, will be that you function as the light of the world. So that at your job, where you will spend most of your life, that's where God is going to ask you to be faithful in many ways. He's going to look a lot to that place because you're going to spend much of your life there. When you begin to live for these words, well done, good and faithful servant, it has a way of elevating whatever your job is. And it has a way of adding richness and meaning to it. I read about a man that worked with H.A. Ironside. Ironside is a... You can buy his commentaries at almost any bookstore. He was a great pastor, former pastor at Moody Bible Church and a great example, an evangelist. He's in heaven now. But he sort of started out his early life working for a Christian shoemaker. Young Harry's job was to prepare the leather for the soles of the shoes. He would cut a piece of cowhide down to size and he would soak it in water. And then his job was to pound it 
with a flat-headed hammer until it was hard and dry. This was a very wearisome and difficult process, and he wished it could be avoided. So he was trying to think of ways to get out of doing this at his job. Harry would often go to another shoe shop nearby and watch his employer's competitor. This man did not pound the leather after it came from the water. Instead, he immediately nailed it onto the shoe he was making. He just bypassed that whole thing that Harry had to do every day on his job. He didn't do that at all. So one day, Harry approached that shoemaker and he said, I noticed that you put the soles on while they are still wet. Are they just as good when you put them on that way as, as they are when they are pounded? Because I do all this pounding when I do it. With a wink and a cynical smile, the man replied, No, they're not as good, but they come back much quicker this way. And they need more work, you see, so I make more money in that way. Young Harry hurried back to his boss and suggested that perhaps they were wasting their time by drying out the leather so carefully and pounding it. Upon hearing this, his employer took his Bible and he turned to Colossians chapter 3 and he read to Harry. And then he said, Harry, I want you to know something. I do not make shoes just for money. He said, I am doing what I do for the glory of God. And I'm very sensitive to that. He said, Harry, listen, if at the judgment seat, I should have to view every shoe that I have ever made. He said, I do not want to have the Lord say to me, Dan, that was a poor job. You didn't do your best. He said, you you understand, Harry, what I want is I want to see his smile as he says to me, well done good and faithful servant. You see, when you've passed your test, when you have that proven faith, and you have grown as a Christian, you come to the point where you live, literally live, for that moment. Now, think about this. Here's a shoemaker. He's not a wealthy man. He's not a famous man in church history. But he was a very faithful man. And that's the thing that the Lord is looking for. How many of you have ever felt like you have a, a post in life, you do something in life, and, and that you're there doing it, but you're not as gifted as some other people that you know that do that same thing. Have you ever felt that? I have felt it many times. God has blessed me with some very wonderful friends that are luminaries in the body of Christ today, and they are some of the greatest preachers known today, and I feel often dwarfed by their giftedness. I feel... So ungifted at times. I feel like I'm trying to do well what they are doing well. That kind of, you understand what I'm saying by that? You look around and you just go, man, I just, oh, this person is so gifted. They do just what I, but look at how they do it. Oh, man. Oh, I wonder how God's going to reward me when this is the way it really should be done. I was encouraged. I read about a pastor who was very dedicated to God, but he wasn't that gifted as a speaker. And one day he received a letter of encouragement from one of the people in his church. And he wrote back and he wrote in the note, he said, You know, it gives me real joy, great joy, when I'm able to help somebody. Thank you so much for writing. And he went on to say this in his letter. He said, Looking at my meager ability and my lack of education, 
I sometimes think my highest reward will not be the words, well done, but rather the words, well tried, good and faithful servant. <laughs> I read that, I thought, yes, I can relate to that. Well tried. In other words, God, you know, I've tried my best. You know what? That's all that matters. That's what he's looking for. Well done, good and faithful servant. You see, the question isn't how much were you noticed. The question isn't how famous were you. The question isn't how much did you do. The question is going to simply be this. Were you faithful in the calling that the Lord gave you? And so with a proven faith, that's why what we've been studying for weeks is so critical. Passing the test is so critical. With a proven faith, you will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, even if you feel like you just tried your best and didn't do nearly as well as others. God isn't looking at what others are doing. He's going to judge you solely on how He has gifted you. And that's it. So well done, good and faithful servant. I love what, it, what you find in Matthew 25, 23 at the end. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Then this, enter into the joy of the Lord. One of the reasons we live for that phrase, well done, good and faithful servant, is because we know that's where we enter in. We know that sentence is going to send us in. And the great thing about entering in to heaven where we're going is that in contrast to the first paradise that God put man in, there's no way out of this paradise. You see, in the first paradise... There was a way out. And man found it, didn't he? He sinned his way out. And what happened was after Adam and Eve fell, God put them out of the garden and he put angels with flaming swords at the gate of the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in their sin. That was an act of mercy from God. But they were also expelled from paradise because of their sin. So God in the first paradise left a way out. Man found it through his sin. When we enter in to the paradise of heaven, folks, there's no way out. So that the good news is when you hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in. As you enter in, you're going to enter in with this confidence. There's no way out. I cannot send my way out of this place. I won't be capable of it. God has fixed it all up. He's made it all secure. When I enter in, I will never leave the joy of the Lord. Isn't that a great thought? Oh, man. So, that little phrase is something that we live for. Now, we're going to receive then praise from our Savior. Secondly is this word honor. If you go back to 1 Peter 1.7. says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor. What is this honor? I think Peter simply uses it as a synonym for our rewards. We are going to be not only verbally praised by Jesus Christ, but we are then going to be actually honored, given rewards. Jesus said in Revelation twenty-two twelve, he said, I and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. First Corinthians 3, 8 says, now he who plants and he who waters are one and each one will receive his own reward 
according to his work. So you will be rewarded according to your work. One of the things that struck me about that a long time ago is that my life here matters. What I do here matters. There was a point in my Christian life where I got into this phase where I thought, you know, all that really matters is that I've come to Christ. I've, I believe the gospel. I've responded. I'm saved by grace. I'm going to heaven. You know, so I live kind of a sloppy life. We're, we're just kind of all waiting around here, biding time anyway, until we either die or get raptured. So what's the big deal about all... What's everybody getting so hyper about all this service and everything else? Hey, I'm saved. Isn't that the greatest miracle of all? But you know, I, I continued to read my Bible and I found out we will be rewarded for our works. I found out that a proven faith brings a life of productivity, a life of effectiveness, and that there isn't one thing you do for Jesus Christ, not one good work that He's going to miss, and He will reward it. All of that said to me, everything that I do from now on matters. I cannot just drift as a Christian. It all matters. All of it. Every minute in the Christian life matters. Because, get this, every minute of service is going to be rewarded in an eternal way. You understand the ramifications of that? It all matters. So I cannot just drift through the Christian life. I can't. I have been called and gifted with a unique giftedness and calling, and so have you. Time unfolds what that is. It's a never-ending blossoming process. And I'm going to be rewarded for what I have done. That matters to me a lot. And from what I can see in the Bible, we touched on the parable of the talents a few minutes ago in Matthew 25. Uh, what I can see there, he said, you've been faithful over a few things, I'll make you ruler over many. That is a clear statement that says, what I do here is tied into what I do there. And there are all these challenges and exhortations to get me to be concerned about what I'm supposed to do here. And then there's all these positive encouragements that everything that I do that I'm supposed to do here will be rewarded by God. And the reward is going to be above and beyond anything we could ever imagine. But I'm convinced that my service in heaven will be tied into the service that I rendered here. And so you, you cannot allow yourself to be deluded into some kind of state where you think it doesn't matter what you do at church. You can't allow yourself to just sit kind of like you're in front of the TV during the announcements. You know, you got a Diet Coke here and some pretzels there and your remote. And Norm comes out and he does the announcements. Oh, here's Norm again. Yeah, it'll be over in a minute. Where do you want to eat after church anyway? He's almost done. Hurry up. You know, you can't just do that. When there's all these opportunities, you know, the way you find out about opportunities in your church, if you're someone who considers this your church and you're not just passing by on the salad bar today, but the way, which is a disease in Southern California of the greatest magnitude, no service, no tithing, no connectivity, no accountability. Salad bar people, are have, they have the worst disease in Orange County, in my opinion, in Christianity. That's a whole different issue. Let's go back to a happy one. But I don't even remember what I'm on now. 
You in the front row. What am I on? You don't know? Oh, forget it. Maybe Thursday's night, Thursday night message will grab you. I'll switch to that. But you see, you can't just file in and file out and hear what's going on and hear about opportunities in an irrelevant way. Once you understand everything I do is critical, you listen. Because maybe something's coming out in a newsletter, on the table in the foyer, in the announcements that God wants you involved in. You don't just sit on autopilot anymore. You can't. It all matters. You live for that time when you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and then enter into the honor, the honor of rewards, and you are concerned about those rewards because you're living your life now for those riches in heaven. So much we could say on this. Do you realize the Bible talks about our rewards in terms of crowns? And then Jesus talks in Revelation about a, a white robe. I will give you a white garment. The Bible talks about harps. It talks about a seat of honor where you rule with Christ. Do you realize that part of being honored by Christ is that you have a crown in heaven that will not fit another head? Mine's have to be a big one, I understand. But do you realize you have a seat in heaven that no one else can sit in? That you have a robe that's been tailored for you when you get there? Jesus is going to say, here, let me help you on with this thing. And it's waiting for you. Do you understand there's a harp in heaven for you that will remain silent until you get there? Do you understand there's people robed and seated and have their harps and their crowns and they're all waiting for you to get there because God has designed that they that have gone before us would not be made perfect without us, that heaven won't be perfect until we're all there? Now, I don't know what the crown and the robe and the harp thing exactly means, but I do know we're going to be surprised at what it all means when we get there. I'm convinced that when we get to heaven, every saved soul in heaven is going to be a wonder to us. And that heaven is going to be a vast collection of the wonders of the grace and the mercy of God. It's going to be like a palace of miracles. I believe that when we get to heaven, from the very first moment, everything we see and do is going to surprise us. Everything we see and do. Because it's going to be a place where the glory of God will be put on display in an unbridled fashion. That brings us to the third word, glory. Praise from our Savior, honor from our Savior, glory from our Savior. He honors us with glory. What do you think that means? I think it means that we will be made like Him. So that 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We're going to be glorified like Him. So that part of the honor that's promised to me is this glorification state. That means a brand new body. It means a glorified state of spirit and soul. I will know as I am known. All of this. And you know, I look forward to that almost with an intense craving. An insatiable craving because I'm so sick of living in this sinful body, aren't you? So I look forward to that glorification. It's a great honor waiting for me. Just to be free from sin is like the ultimate thing. But in reality, it's not. And it seems to me that there is a greater reality behind the glorification than just our enjoyment of being free from sin. And you want to know what I think that is? 
the reality of an unbridled communion with our Jesus Christ. There is nothing beyond our fellowship with Jesus Christ. So that we will be glorified for the purpose of being able to finally fully enter into that for which we were created, which is fellowship with God. So the glorification, yes, will bless you, but the purpose behind it is so you can enter into an unbridled fellowship with Jesus Christ, which is the very reason you were created. R.B. Kuyper put it this way. He said, you know, he said, would you know what makes heaven heaven? He said, it is communion with God. I like that. Martin Luther used to say, he said, I would not give one moment of heaven for all of the joys and the riches of this world, even if it lasted for thousands and thousands of years. You understand what he was saying? If you gave me all the temporal joys of this life, and I can have that, and you offered it to me, I wouldn't trade one moment of heaven for that. You know why? Because he understood that unbridled fellowship with our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in a glorified state, one moment of that experience would so far surpass the emptiness of money and temporal joys of this life. So I look forward to that glory because, I'll tell you, my relationship with Jesus Christ, my fellowship with Him, that is it. That is everything. So yes, I'm excited about the crown. I'm excited about the robe and the harp. But I'm far more excited about fellowship with God in heaven than anything else. And if you love Jesus Christ today, that means a lot to you. And that is a great index to you. If you sit here and you think, what time is it anyway? Is he almost done? You know, then you're in big trouble. Because it signifies you have no heart for God. You have no understanding what the Christian life is all about. So we will be honored. And that honor of being face to face with Jesus is the thing that drives you on as a Christian. Robert Murray McShane, who I quoted a moment ago, once wrote these words. They're so profound. He said, When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. There's so much waiting for us in the honor of heaven. So our inheritance contributes to our joy. Our trials contribute to our joy. Our honor contributes to our joy, the honor waiting for us. And then the fellowship now that we have with Jesus Christ. Look at verse Peter 1.8. He says, whom, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. One of the main contributors to our joy in this life is what I just alluded to a moment ago. That is the love we have for our unseen Savior. I think this is the hallmark of a true Christian. If you say to me, I'm a Christian, but you have no love for Christ, then I question your Christianity. You see, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16.22, he said, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. If you tell me, I heard the gospel, I believed it, I prayed a prayer. 
But I say, why is there no love for Christ in your life? And you say, don't judge me, brother. I say to you, I'm not. The Bible is. If you're a Christian, you love Christ. If you're a Christian, even to hear those words spoken to you today thrills your heart because you do. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not truly born again, you're not moved by that. You think it's an irrelevant, picky, over-picky detail. But let me tell you something. It's a major detail that will determine your destiny. In John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Do you love Jesus Christ today? Can you honestly say as you sit here, Yes! Oh, not perfectly, but yes! And it is the great cry of my heart to love Him more than you're a Christian. If you're one of these people that has to be called up, nagged, and continually followed up on, constantly wandering, because you don't have this love, you have every reason to question whether you're a born-again Christian or not. If you don't love Him, you don't know Him. Because in this sense, to know Him is to love Him. In Ephesians 6.24, Paul said, Grace be with all those that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Peter, 1 Peter, the book we're studying, chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. Is He precious to you today? Oh, thank God for that preciousness of Christ, that love for Him. It's that love that causes you to realize, you know, I have to spend the best hours of my day in communion with Him because there's nothing more valuable in my life than to be with Him. He, that fellowship with Him, communion with Him is, is the greatest thing in my life. It's not something to be tossed into some corner. It's not some afterthought. It is everything to me. The love of Christ. We love an unseen Savior. It's an amazing thing. It's a paradox. It's one of the most amazing things of all religions in the world that we are those that love this Savior who walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. We've never seen Him. He's never walked up and touched you. Peter had that thrill, that joy in his life. He's marveling as he writes to these people. You've never seen Him, but you love Him so. It's a paradox. Tozer put it this way, A.W. Tozer, he said, A real Christian is an odd number anyway his way of saying Christians are peculiar. He said he feels supreme love for one he has never seen. He talks familiarly with him every day to this someone he cannot see. He expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another. He empties himself in order to be full. He admits he is wrong so he can be declared right. He goes down in order to get up. He is strongest when he is weakest. He is richest when he is poorest. He is happiest when he feels the worst. He dies so he can live. He forsakes in order to have. He gives away so he can keep. In the midst of it all, he sees the invisible. He hears the inaudible. And he knows that which passes knowledge. And that is the love of Jesus Christ. You love him though you have not seen him. And that is the essence of your joy in the Christian life. You have this love for an unseen Savior, which brings this joy from an unseen Savior. And look at this joy. He says here, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Look at this. 
You can't see him, but you believe in him. And to back up into our former messages, with a proven faith, you believe in him more than ever. So that in this believing that you can't see him, you have this trust. And that trust brings a joy inexpressible, full of glory. Do you realize that trust in any form brings a kind of joy? Let's just take it outside the Christian life. Trust in any form does bring a... Trust of any kind does bring a form of joy. Trust between human beings. When you feel that you can trust another human being, there's sort of a, a peaceful joy there. The problem with that trust in the world is that generally somewhere along the line it's broken, right? I think one of the reasons our joy is so great in Jesus Christ is that we have the joy of an unbroken trust. And a proven faith cements that reality in your heart and mind. You have seen it. Those of you, how many of you have ever thought you hit a point in your life where Jesus broke his promise to you? You know what that's like, don't you? You get there, you're questioning him. You're mad at God, you're shouting. You're pacing back and forth. You're looking at the bills in front of you. You're looking at the eviction notice on your front door. You're looking at the bills that have come in. They're going to repossess your guard. They're going to take away your house. And you're before God. You've broken your promises. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? But you see, what happens is with hindsight, time tells that he has broken no promises, that his will has been done, that what is best for you has occurred. And you have only praises for the unbroken promises as the time goes by. Isn't that true? You see, he breaks no promise. He's never broken a promise to you. And the joy of an unbroken trust is your joy then as a Christian. Because you know he will never break a promise. So you have this joy that is elevated. It's something totally different than any kind of joy the world can know. Because generally, the trust is always broken eventually in the world in some way. So it's the joy of an unbroken trust which leads to this inexpressible joy. You can't even put it into words. I heard someone recently say there's about 25,000 words in the English language we use commonly. There's about 120,000 in the Greek language. You understand then why they chose, God chose the Greek to write his book. But even at that, you can't express all the joy. It's a joy so deep down in your soul. Peter says we've been made partakers of the divine nature of God himself. He lives within us now. He's imparting to us this supernatural joy. It's his joy. And he's giving us a transfusion. So we just cash in on his joy. It's great. I'm hooked to him and he's got it and so do I. So it flows within us. And it's a joy inexpressible because it's so deep down in my life. You cannot put it into words. It's beyond anything. But that doesn't mean it doesn't show. And we've talked before about this person who says, I have joy, it's way down deep. And they're just the saddest, glummest chum you've ever seen. Listen, this kind of joy, you can't put it into words, but it comes into your face. God puts it into your face. Again, I want to quote Robert Murray McShane. He said this, Oh, for the closest communion with God, tell soul and body and hand and face and heart shine with divine brilliancy. And then he prayed a safety prayer. He said, But oh, for a holy ignorance of our shining. So that once you're blessed with the glory and shining with the joy of the Lord, you don't get all proud about it. 
You know, you go by the mirror and see yourself twinkling, get all weird on yourself. But oh, for a holy ignorance of our shining. Listen, it's a joy unspeakable, but it's powerful. It becomes the most powerful force in your life because the joy of the Lord is your strength. I'll confess to you freely, what drew me to Christ more than any other factor beside the piercing of His Spirit and the Word of my heart, what drew me to Christ was the joy I saw in the faces of the Christians I knew. Listen, I had taken drugs with all these guys. I'd gotten drunk endless times with all these guys. I had seen their fleeting joy, you know, the joy of this world. And I saw the joy of God in their faces, and I knew Jesus Christ was real because of the joy in their faces. It's way down deep inside, but it comes back up into the faces of God's people. It's a shining. And he says here, it's a a joy that's full of glory. Literally, the original language implies it's a glorified joy. You see, there is joy in this world, but it's corrupt. You know the joy I'm talking about. You're about to go sin, some sin you've been planning for a while. You're just all excited about it. Or you're, you're, you like to drink, so you, you have your first few drinks, and it's so good, it's joyful. And you have a few more drinks and get mean on everybody. It's a fleeting joy, right? We all know the happy drunk who gets mean after a while, after too many. It's a fleeting joy. It's a corrupt joy. Look at this. God takes this human emotion, which is powerful. He glorifies it with His presence. He lifts it. And then, in this glorified state of joy, He infuses His strength to us so that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We have a joy, brethren. And the devil would like to do everything he can to rob it from you. We have a joy that is a glorified joy. It's unlike anything you can find in the world. And it is our strength. And it is also the strength of our witness as well. It is a great thing. And so we have this fellowship with Christ, this love for this unseen Savior that brings this inexpressible joy. Finally, the last thing is our deliverance. I just want to read the verse and we'll be done. He says in 1 Peter 1.9, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You see, he's talking about now, not then, but now. He's saying right now, your proven faith gives you salvation. Now, you have a changed life. One of the greatest things about being a Christian is that I've been rescued. I have a different life. I don't have a perfect life. Well, I, I'll tell you, I sure have a changed life. I'm not the man I used to be. I'm not the man I hope to be. I'm not even now the man I should be. But I am a changed man. If you're a Christian today, you're a changed individual. You've been rescued. You can enjoy that change right now. And you can know there's more change coming. There is a great joy in the fact that you have already been saved. And you have already been changed. There is every reason in the Christian life to have joy. Do you know this joy? Listen, if all you have today is emptiness and heartache and guilt and grief, Jesus Christ loves you. And He wants to take your life and He wants to change it and fill it until it overflows with His joy. A joy unspeakable, full of glory. Don't let anything in this world hold you back from receiving from Him what He wants to give 
If you don't know this joy, open your heart today and ask Jesus Christ to save you, to forgive you, to come and live within you, and to give you the joy that he died that you might live in. This is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the joy that we have in you. Thank you for the honor that waits for us. Thank you for the changes that have already come. Thank you for the promises that have never been broken. Thank you for the joy, Lord, of an unbroken trust. And God, we just bless you and praise you that we have such an abundant life in Jesus Christ, so much to live for today and so much to look forward to for all of eternity. Thank you, Lord, that we can die the right way because we know you, Lord Jesus. And for those here today that don't know you, reveal yourself to their hearts that this could be the day of salvation for them as well. And we do ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.